Hi everyone. Hi everyone. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the elders at Real Life Church. Married to Becky, we have uh, three children. Joel, who's 17, and Caitlin, who's 15, as well as Isaac, who's nine. Uh, Joel and Caitlin uh, should be uh, preparing for their exams, their final exams, but they won't be writing those. We've found out that they'll be graduating onto university and to sixth form respectively because of the, the current situation. So they're enjoying a little bit of extra time at home with, with family. And Isaac is still in primary school. He's been really enjoying getting work back from his teachers that he can do at home and, and sending that in um, via the modern technology. Um, and also really been enjoying hanging out with his brother and his sister and uh, having a little bit more time to, to just be together with, with all of us as a family. Today, I have the privilege of speaking to you all about Jesus, the way to heaven. This is the third and, and final part of our Easter series, Waymaker. We would have loved to have all been together as we celebrated Easter, but we'd also like to thank you so much for inviting us into your home over this time instead. We hope you found the structure helpful and that Easter has taken on a special significance as we've spent this time apart physically, but we've been united spiritually. As well as the, the sermon series, we've prepared readings and lesson outlines for Real Life Kids, which you can find in this channel, or you'll be able to click on the links at the end of this video. As part of this, we've also learned how to sign Jesus is my way maker. So far, we've learned that Jesus is the way to the Father and that Jesus is the way to life. Stuart started our series the week before Easter Sunday and we looked at the crucifixion. We looked at three events that happened on that day, the darkness, the tearing of the curtain and the death of Christ. We learned that when Jesus went to the cross and surrendered his life, he made a way for us to dwell in the Father's presence every day of our lives into eternity. And this was symbolized by the tearing of the curtain from the top to the bottom inside the temple and the curtain that separated the, the holiest place in the temple from the rest. It was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and the presence of God dwelt. And only one man, the high priest, could go into that place once a year and he was in danger of dying if he was not properly prepared to face the holiness of God. When that curtain was torn, it was a message that access to the Father was now unrestricted for those that are found in Christ Jesus. When Melanie spoke to us on Easter Sunday about the resurrection, we found out that that remarkable day when the, the woman went to Jesus' tomb to finish the job of burying him and, and they discovered that that the stone in front of the tomb had been rolled away and, and Jesus' body was, was no longer there. So if, if Jesus' death was what was required to pay the price for people to be made right with God, then the resurrection was the Father's stamp of approval. It was 
God saying, my son's sacrifice is sufficient. And so he will not stay dead, but he will be resurrected back to life. Not just any life. He, he never died again. He wasn't resuscitated like Lazarus, where he was raised from the dead by Jesus, but he, he died again. It wasn't like that. Jesus never died again. His body was glorified. He could appear and disappear, but he could also eat. He bore the wounds of the crucifixion, but they didn't cause him pain or inconvenience. And he spent 40 days like this with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. I mean, how much more evidence do you need that this man is, in fact, who he claimed to be? It's one thing to be crucified as an innocent man. It's, a, it's another thing that your body suddenly disappears. It's no longer in the tomb where it was put and where the Roman guards were standing guard. It disappears. But it's on a whole nother level for um, that man to start walking around again amongst the community and all the people that watched him die. This is the sign of Jonah that Jesus said would be what that generation would see. That would be the evidence that he was the Messiah. The words and actions of Jesus during his incarnation would have made him a wise man or a prophet, but would not have been sufficient to justify man before God. We could have followed every word that Jesus taught and obeyed every one of his commands if he had simply died like every other wise man or prophet. And that would not have been enough to justify us before God. The crucifixion paid the price for our sin, but even that was not enough to give Jesus' Jesus's followers any hope of eternal life. But his resurrection proved that he had defeated death. It proved that what he was saying when he was alive was not just wisdom, was not just a good way of living, but was was um, pointing to the fact that he was the Messiah, not just the one showing the way to God, but being the way to God. His resurrection proved that he had defeated death. This wasn't a, a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't something in the disciples' minds. He really rose from the dead and he really spent 40 days in the presence of his disciples teaching them further. And then we come to the ascension. And it's, it's very rare to, to spend any significant amount of time on this. So I'm thrilled that we, we get to look at this important event and get to consider the implications of, of Christ's coronation for us. When we talk about Jesus, we, we often consider three events, three things that all churches across the world celebrate. We, we celebrate at Christmas his birth. We celebrate on Good Friday his death. And on Easter Sunday, we celebrate his resurrection. The ascension is, is left as a kind of footnote to explain where he is now. And, that it's, and that's it really. But actually, it's so important. Tim Keller says that 
Without the ascension, everything else lacks potency or point. Everything unravels. He says it is like building a bomb, but not putting in the detonator. Without, without the ascension, there is no hope for us. So with that, let us read the text. We're going to be looking at Luke 24, and I'm going to be reading from verses 44 through to 53. So please do read along with me. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. So Luke, just very quickly, Luke was um, written to a, a man by the name of Theophilus. And um, Luke also wrote Acts. And the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts kind of tie together. So what I'd like to read is just the first three verses of Acts to give us a, a little more context um, into this, this period of time. A little more detail. So this is what Luke says in Acts. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So I don't know about you, but when I look at that text in Luke, I am totally struck by verse 52, which says that they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. I've been involved in a few farewells in my life, and I can't think of a time when they resulted in continuous great joy, especially when you're saying goodbye to someone you love. It's, it's all too easy to, to read these lines flippantly without much thought because it's a, a brief account about stuff that happened a long ago and there is so much else going on in front of us right now. So we, we just grab a glimpse of what happened and, and don't give it too much thought. Let me just try and slow us down a little bit as we look at this text. So you know that that we live in the UK, um, but we're originally from South Africa. And every few years we get to go to South Africa to visit 
family and friends or or they come over here and, and we spend a few weeks together just reminiscing catching up on on what's been going on over the last few years the build-up before the anticipation the traveling there is all exciting being with them is great but when we need to leave it is very hard packing the bags is a, a drag the drive to the airport takes forever and is awkward Collecting boarding passes is seasoned with nervous chatter and um, the last hugs before going through to the boarding gates are, are absolutely gut-wrenching. Saying goodbye is, is never easy and it never results in, in great joy. It may be somewhat eased by knowing that you'll see each other again. It may be eased by knowing that you can stay in contact while apart, but it never results in great joy joy so when i read about this i read that the disciples how how after seeing jesus leave it results in their their rejoicing i want to know why i mean think about it when they followed jesus they believed he was the messiah and that he was going to set his people free from oppression and then he died they were bitterly disappointed and then he rose from the dead and they believed that he was the Messiah and that he was going to set his people free from oppression. And then he left and they were filled with joy. What did they know? What had changed in those 40 days with Jesus that caused them to rejoice when he ascended? What reason do we have to rejoice because of the ascension? That's what I'd like to see today. The text says in verse 45 that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And that's what Jesus does. He promises that through the Holy Spirit. He will open our minds to understand the scriptures and, and that that would fill us with joy. And so today I'm asking that Jesus does that for us. John Piper does a, a brilliant job of illustrating this. I'm, I'm going to read this illustration to you, but please do bear in mind that, that it comes from a sermon that he preached to a church in the States in 1981. So some of the examples may seem a little dated to us. John says, The Apostle Paul teaches that unless Christ takes it away, a veil lies over our minds, concealing the splendor of his work. It may help us pray more earnestly that Christ remove this veil if we know what it looks like from the inside. It's a little different for each person, but the motifs on the fabric are similar. If this veil lies on your mind, what you see is something like this. You see the space shuttle Columbia blasting off with astonishing heat and light and force. And you see terrible mushroom clouds rising up over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You see micro and macro computer systems that control unbelievably complicated procedures. You see national and international political giants wielding tremendous influence in the world. In one sense, it's not dark under this veil. Its underside is woven with all the dazzling colors of the industrial age in which we live. And only very dimly, through some thin patches, 
we see far, far away and very small the scene of an obscure Jewish teacher being caught up in a cloud as his friends look on. And in comparison to the technicolor and size of the images inside the veil, it seems very, very insignificant. Judge for yourselves then whether you need the help of the risen Christ to lift this veil off your mind. That you may see the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God for what it really is. An ascent of joy. So as Jesus leaves and we see his disciples worshipping him and filled with joy, we need to consider two things. And it's the same two things that I consider when I leave my family back in South Africa. You need to consider these two things that they needed to have been assured of to make it so. Firstly, he will return. They had to believe that this was not the end. That they were going to be reunited with the, the one that they love. And it's the same for us. We can consider the ascension of Jesus with joy if we are assured that Jesus will return. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He gave them this assurance just a few weeks earlier. In Luke 21 verse 26, he was telling them about a, a time that was coming when men would faint with fear. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory and in acts 1 verse 11 we see angels coming to assure those same disciples and they said to them this jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven so he is returning. There will be a reunion. And so joy in his absence is possible. That's the assurance that they had. And it is the same for us. It's the same for all of us who put our faith in Jesus now. Peter um, said this in, in his book. 1 Peter 1 verse 8 says this. Without having seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy. But the assurance, as I said, of a reunion alone is not enough to turn that farewell into a joyful occasion. To be sure, it can fill us with hope and it can take the sting out of the separation. But there must be something more than just a reunion to be assured of. We must be assured that the separation is best for us and best for our beloved. It has to be more like sending your child off to New Day, which will happen in 2021 now, or sending your 18-year-old off to uni, like will happen for us in September. The ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven at God's right hand was an ascent of joy because it meant that the greatest possible blessing would come to Jesus and would come to his people. The benefits of the separation promised to be so great that the disciples' grief was turned to continual joy. And very likely, Jesus was taken up in the midst of his blessing 
in order to leave the inescapable impression that his leaving was a blessing. It was an ascent of joy because for Jesus, it meant the beginning of a glorious heavenly exaltation as the God-man in the presence of his Father. And for us, it meant that we would share the benefits of all of that exaltation. So secondly, we need to consider that Jesus is glorified and he is reunited with his Father. The separation of the Son of God from his Father was awful. Not, not only did Christ empty himself of everything but love when he became a man, but in his final act of obedience on the cross, he bore the curse of his Father to save us. And then... In a mighty act of authority over the powers of death, God raises Jesus from the dead. He gives him 40 days to prove himself to his disciples. And now he's coming home. What a reunion it was. And this is what Peter preached with such vigor when he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He said, let all the house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you have crucified. And what Paul declared with everything within him to the church in Philippi, when he said, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There never was before, nor will there ever be again a coronation day like that. If all the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents, what must they have done when the Son came home, whose blood bought all of those repentant sinners? With that in mind, I'd like to touch on three of the benefits of the Ascension for us. And then I want to finish off by looking at the implications to how we live now. And then we will pray and we will ask Jesus to help us to rejoice as those disciples rejoiced. The first reason is that Jesus continues to work after his Ascension. Acts 1 verses 1 to 2 reads like this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. The small but important word began signals that Jesus's ascension does not mark the end, but the continuation of his works as Lord and Messiah. That's what Luke's second book is all about. The Acts of the risen Lord Jesus, which he works from heaven through his people by the Holy Spirit for the accomplishment of God's purposes. Because he is seated in heaven, we can continue his work. No, because he is seated in heaven, he can continue his work at a cosmic level, no longer bound by space and time. He can heal in India and he can preach in Bolton and he can whisper comfort in Sutton Coldfield all at the same time. 
Secondly, the ascended Lord Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to be with his people. After his resurrection, Jesus told his followers, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. In Peter's Pentecost sermon, he explains, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from his Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. God promised in Joel 2 verse 28, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And this promise is fulfilled by the exalted heavenly Lord Jesus. The ascended Lord sent the Spirit to be present with his people, to empower them for worldwide mission, and to transform believers to live new lives that reflect their King. Because Jesus is seated in heaven, we are able to receive the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. That same power resides in us, his people, so that we're able to do his will on earth. Isn't that what we pray every day? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thirdly, the ascended Lord Jesus is our heavenly mediator and our high priest. Jesus is the unique mediator between God and man. His death and resurrection secure our forgiveness, our justification, and our reconciliation with God. And in addition to those beautiful gifts, the exalted Lord Jesus is now in heaven and he is interceding for his people as our true high priest and advocate. He's able to hear and respond to his people's prayers no matter the time or place. And he sympathizes with our struggles and promises to do whatever we ask in his name. So what does all of this mean for us now? Firstly, when we say that Jesus is the way to heaven, we do not mean that he is our ticket out of here. The promise of heaven is, is not a promise of escape from the material world in a, a spirit, into a spiritual world when you die. Rather, it's a promise that Jesus in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, is the very best place for him to be. For his glory and for our good. And to be sure, we will be with him one day in heaven. But more profoundly, we can live assured that we dwell with him in heaven now. That he represents us in the courts of God now. That he is living and active all around the world now. And that he has sent us out by his Holy Spirit, into the world, in his power, continuing his ministry across the world and throughout time. So, therefore, I'd suggest that in the light of all of that, we should be living boldly. We should be living confidently and strategically as servants of the exalted King of Heaven. Know that your labors in the Lord Jesus are not in vain. Secondly, for those of us that are suffering, 
take heart that Jesus is, is not indifferent to your struggle. He has endured great suffering and he is thus the most merciful and sympathetic counselor and mediator. Take your cares to your ascended Lord who hears your prayers and can respond with all heaven's authority. And finally, hope in a glorious future. The ascended Lord will return as king and judge. He will abolish injustice. He will end suffering and he will destroy death and set up his kingdom of truth, righteousness and love. And best of all, we will be with our king forever. Let's pray. Lord, how great is your name in all the earth. We believe, Jesus, that you died for our sins, that you rose on the third day, that you ascended to the right hand of your Father on high, and that you are coming again. Lord, help us to see and feel what that means, that you will be revealed in unspeakable glory, that you will roll up the sky like a scroll and you will throw it away, that you will cleave the earth, And you will sweep it clean with worldwide judgment. And you will make a new heaven and a new earth in a universe of righteousness and holiness. For before you, all the nations are as dust. Our biggest ideas are like the mutterings of a a baby. Our greatest technologies are the Fisher-Price toys of heaven. God, have mercy on our blindness. Forgive us that we are so easily enamored by the big, the novel, the flashy works of man, and so little awed by the power at work in Christ Jesus. Frustrate the God of this world and tear the veil apart that we might see the universal significance of the ascension of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm looking forward to our new preaching series on the Apostles' Creed. Stuart will be kicking that off next week. And um, as we close, if you missed them, the links for Real Life Kids and a worship playlist will be on the screen now. Thank you so much for listening and I trust that you have a, a brilliant week.